Hello, welcome to Shepherd the Sea Sheep. This is Pastors Jason Vaughn and Gina Glermo, and we have a special guest joining us today, and really excited to hear her voice and her research and her work and how it's helpful and can really benefit the local church or really any group that you're involved in. Welcome. It's good to be here. Welcome, Diana. Yeah, Diana. So today's special guest, Diana Glyer, writer, author of Bandersnatch, uh, also a second book. And so welcome to the podcast. We are really excited to have you, really excited to to glean from you and to, to hear your research. And uh, Diana, if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe uh, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe maybe tell us how you got uh, started with the Inklings. I've really been looking forward to this because I love talking about Lewis and Tolkien, but especially to really zero in on the practical lessons that we can learn from their example. So I've been looking forward to the chance uh, for the chance to talk about those things. Uh, I got interested in Lewis and Tolkien back when I was in high school and what happened was I had first read C.S. Lewis's science fiction novel, Out of the Silent Planet. And as a young Christian, that book absolutely blew my mind. It was so um, authentic in its perspective of uh, life submitted to the Lord. And it just it helped me so much as a young Christian to learn more about faith, but to do it in a way that was enchanting and engaging. So... Uh, shortly after that, I, I, when I discovered Tolkien, and then I discovered that the two men were friends, it was just so exciting for me. I mean, just imagine, here's Lewis, author of Screwtape Letters, Chronicles of Narnia. Here's Tolkien, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And they knew each other. They knew each other well. They hung out a lot together. And uh, at the time, I just thought, that was a great fellowship. And I became really, really curious, super curious to... I don't know, maybe I can put it this way, to, to be a fly on the wall, you know? I just I wanted to be sitting at the Eagle and Child pub, like right next to where Lewis and Tolkien were meeting every week and just listen in, like, what were those great conversations like between the two? And I thought, well, lots of people will have written about this, will have, will have given us an inside view of what that friendship really meant and what, what difference those conversations made to the work that these men were writing and I couldn't find it anywhere, so I decided I'd have to dig it out myself. And so I started very early on looking at, like, the rough drafts of their manuscripts, reading through their diaries and letters, and looking for the evidence that would help me understand what was it about that friendship that made such a difference in the work that they were doing. Hmm. That's that's amazing. Um, and so you started... Uh, on your was your PhD work right was to start to look at this as well. 
Yes, I did. I did do um, a, a PhD program in the, just the study of writing groups in general. So there's a whole lot of studies that have been done on how groups of writers have worked together over the years. And that was what my doctoral dissertation was on. It was on groups more in general. But then I used that research as kind of a, of a lens to help me to observe some of the various ways that Lewis Tolkien and the other men known as the Inklings work together. So the Inklings grew from the friendship of Lewis and Tolkien. It grew very slowly and very organically. But uh, eventually, there were 19 men who were involved in these weekly meetings of the group, and they met over a period of nearly 20 years, which is a long time for a small group to succeed. Most most small groups, they've been part of a small group, small group ministry, small group prayer group. Most of them last about four to six years as a typical life cycle of a small group, right? Because... People change and circumstances evolve and people move and that kind of stuff. But these guys met for almost 20 years together and they met very faithfully. They met every Thursday night and they met at Maudlin College in Oxford in C.S. Lewis's room and they read their manuscripts out loud to each other and they um, enjoyed both encouragement and brutal criticism of one, of one another's work. Huh. So it's interesting because one of the things that, that really uh, captivated me about your work and um, is that for our church, we, we, make, uh, we ask our, our kind of leadership development people, and, and really we try to get everybody to kind of go through that leadership development program. Um, we ask everybody at some point to read The Inner Ring by, mm-hmm. by C.S. Lewis. And so yeah. the entire time I'm listening to your book, I'm thinking, wow, I'm actually, I actually get to see the inner ring in its almost movie form through, through the stories you tell and, and just basically your analysis of this group. And yeah, so, Lewis talks, talks a lot in a number of his fictional works about how collaboration can go bad or how trying to get into the inner ring can be dangerous for our souls. But what we see in the Inklings is an incredibly successful and, and I would say very healthy uh, balance of encouragement, accountability, and critique that really sustained them. Not only that, I think it made a huge difference in their lives. Right. And that that's the cool part because for this podcast, you know, we, we are trying to help uh, our church be what we call craftsmen or churchmen, right? So craftsmen at the church where where we want, uh, we're trying to help encourage our listeners to be better at the one another's in the church um, and leading mm-hmm. people to Christ and making disciples and and how we as a church work together and think through issues together and and how we maintain unity without uniformity and so that's the that's the really the blessing of your book here is that it's really helpful to us in fact uh, we used your book at our last elders retreat as kind of, um, and looked at those principles that you drew out in the last chapter of how those can be beneficial to us as elders. And so yeah. one, of, one of the things you picked up or you commented on is just how collaboration has, right, that word needs to be redeemed and really the concept and the work of collaborating together needs to be redeemed. Uh, would you mind talking about that for a little bit? I would, I would love to talk about that. And I think you're exactly right. The word redeemed is so important when we're thinking about collaboration, because I think our thinking about that word has been poisoned 
by a number of things. One is this sort of individualistic perspective we have on, on human achievement, right? So we talk about the first man on the moon, but we don't talk about the entire group of individuals who had an important role to play right. to pull that off, right? We talk about Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, but he's working with 17, 18, 19 assistants who are wow. mixing paint, putting on plaster, and they're actually doing some of the painting right alongside him. But that's not the image that we have. We think about Edison inventing the light bulb, right? And we see this, we, we have a picture, um, I would say a poisonous <laughs> picture of this guy in a laboratory trying, you know, attempt after attempt to try to pull this off. And what we don't see is this incredible large room that had at any given time of day, 50 or 60 wow. different people working together using the best gifts of all of them in this dynamic interaction. And I think that that's really unfortunate, that we tend to think so much about the individual and so little about how each one of these individuals is embedded, right, in this larger circle of support and also of talent, different talents and abilities coming together, and then the whole being so much greater than the sum of its parts. I I sometimes think that if we did this right, um, our um, acknowledgments pages in our book or our thank yous when we're receiving awards, I think all of that would look sort of like the credits at the end of a Marvel movie, yeah. you know? Yeah. We've got all these individuals and each one so key, right, to the, to the outcome. So I think that we can learn a lot about collaboration if we first aren't so afraid of it, right. if we don't let it stir up our middle school associations, right, with those group projects. Remember those group oh, projects yes. in middle yes. school, yeah. right? Your teacher put you together. They gave you a project. Nobody did the work. Yeah. And you ended up doing all of it all by yourself late at night and buying the poster board the size, right? <laughs> um, what, <laughs> what, if, what if collaboration is something much more splendid than that? Oh. And what if it has a lot of new and different components mm-hmm. that we might not normally think of? Um, what, what are some of those components? Uh, what are some of the things that collaboration includes? Uh, I, there's a lot of them we could talk about, but I think that maybe one of the big ones is simple encouragement. Mm. Uh, what we see in the Inklings is that Tolkien worked on the Lord of the Rings for a really long time. And we know for a fact that at several points in the process of that monumental work, he gave up. He just... <laughs> He got tired, he got discouraged, and frankly, he got stuck. You know, he got writer's block. Right. And so we have a couple of occasions in the letters and diaries, we can track these exactly, where Lewis and Tolkien get together, and Tolkien says to Lewis, you know, I'm done with this. I've been working on this. I've given this all I got. I got nothing else. I got nothing left. I got no story ideas. I'm just, I'm finished. I'm going to call my publisher this afternoon and say, I can't do it. Uh, is Lewis gently and um, and lovingly supporting, encouraging, and then offering some specific advice. What if you tried this? What if you tried that? And Tolkien basically says, you know, no, I can't. I really can't. But later that same day, we see the evidence that Tolkien goes home and he says, well, 
maybe I could give it just one more try. And he does. And it starts to take on a life of its own. And we see this over and over again in Lewis and Tolkien's life, the role of encouragement. But think about how important that is for us as the body of Christ to come alongside one another and to say, yeah, I know it's hard. And I know you've been at this for a while. And I know it doesn't look very good right now. But I believe you can do this. Uh, And I'm going to hang in there with you. I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to listen to you, and I'm going to do whatever I can by way of practical help to see you through this rough patch. We hold hope for one another in the process. Right. That's so encouraging to hear because, you know, uh, I've noticed in groups that that sometimes the people doing what's right don't they don't get a a compliment or an encouragement, right? And so it's almost like, you know, that that's where that the proverbial right the squeaky the squeaky wheel gets the grease, mm-hmm. but, but just to come alongside kind of, cause you're talking really collaboration in a teamwork setting. And, and that was, those yeah. were excellent Edison and all those were excellent examples. And you, you made my mind think of like, you know, one thing I learned about the NFL is that if your president and owner doesn't care about winning, then it trickles mm. down to, to the field. And so it's just funny how, yeah. You know, because you're always like, why is the president up getting the trophy? He didn't do anything. But then later you realize, <laughs> no, you know, he's an instrumental part of this. And yeah. uh, World War II, like 90% of the uh, those in the military never, they didn't do any, they, they didn't do anything on the front lines. And yet if you like, history shows that they were successful because of their supply lines and they, you they know, did their part, they did their part yeah. so yeah, well, everybody. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. but you're right. So we end up kind of crediting one person, mm-hmm. but, but the reality right. is it's never yeah. just one person. And so, no, no that's awesome. Yeah. No, that's, I think that's why I, I, lo- can, I love the hobbits because yeah, yes. I can relate to them. <laughs> right. like, ah, oh, yeah, the hobbits, right? yeah. Like everyone Gandalf and Aragorn and, uh, but what about the hobbits? Uh, they were yeah. so crucial. Yeah. The pinky matters guys. Come on. The pinky does matter. Oh, it does. Absolutely. And that's really the theme, isn't it, of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, that it is the daily acts of faithfulness of the small little guys who just get up and say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to give it I'm (laughs) going to give it my best. And they end up being the ones who turn the tide. That was that was uh, Tolkien's experience actually in wartime. It's interesting that you mentioned the military, but that was Tolkien's um, perception from his own experience in World War One, that it was really the small acts of daily faithfulness huh. that mm. made the biggest difference in the battle. The generals, we might think of the wizards, you know, the, yeah. those people who are in charge, the kings, the rulers, the politicians, the big guys often are the focal point. But even if you think about Lord of the Rings, so much happens because those larger figures are a distraction to the real work that's happening in the trenches, as it were. Uh, As ordinary people just ask the question every day, what can I do to be faithful? Hmm. Oh, that's so great. That's great. And that's where that that encouragement from, you know, so from what I understand, you know, from what you've said is that, right, Lewis and Tolkien share these common goals of of really getting the project done um, and being good at it. And so um, Tolkien yep. seems to be very much right. So at some points, Lewis just comes along. It, it maybe seems to remind him of the common goals and and tries to kind of give those those gentle nudges of, right, try to get the brain flowing a little bit. Yeah. 
From what I understand, yeah. they're trying to write stuff that they liked or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. The kind of books that they like to read. I, I think that part of why that works so well, that um, kind of friendship and coming alongside is I think that they understood the difference between praise and encouragement. And I think that that's something that's helpful for us, really, really specific and really, really practical. And that's that praise and encouragement are not the same thing. Oh, that's a good point. Praise Mm -hmm. is oriented toward the work, right? So I say to you, oh my goodness, that was a brilliant sermon, right? That's praise, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, wow, what a fascinating podcast, right? right? And you say, well, that's, that's great. But there's a weird thing about praise. And praise often has the opposite result of what we expect. Praise sometimes makes us feel insecure. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you're not as insecure as I am, but when, you know, when someone says something like, oh, that was a great sermon, I think, oh, yay. And then I think, oh, no, I don't know how I did that, and I don't think I can do it again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yes, we can both relate. This is, this is yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> right? Or someone says, that was a great podcast. And you say, well, that was a fluke because I hadn't even had my second right. cup of coffee yet. <laughs> right, and that right. was just the grace of God at work oh right my there. Goodness. You Wish, were you there? <laughs> yes, I know. You've been listening. You've studied us. <laughs> so, that's, so that's praise. And, and we need praise. Praise is good. But the problem is praise doesn't go very deep down into our souls. And this mm-hmm. is, I think, especially important for parents. Oh, right? yes. Good point. But encouragement is directed toward the person. Hmm. So if I say, wow, you are a brilliant interviewer. You bring up just the right questions at just the right time. That goes into our soul, right? We hear that if you say, you know, the love that you have for God's people is so evident when you are preaching. Hmm. That goes into your soul because Mm -hmm. that's encouragement for you. Remember that encouragement is the idea of putting courage into the heart, Hmm. right? The French word core, the word heart. Putting courage into the heart of the person and so for Lewis to say to Tolkien, no, I know that you're discouraged, but you got this. You have what it takes to follow this through and to do something great. That's why Tolkien was able to receive that word mm-hmm. and give it another try. Huh, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, offering specific advice. Like, um, how, what does that look like specifically in, in, in their relationship? Yeah, I love I love that question because I think that a lot of times when when people ask us for advice, what we do is diagnose rather than prescribe. Mm. And the inklings are really good at prescribing. So if I come to you with a question or a problem, you know, you might say, "Oh, well, you know, this is what's wrong." And usually, if I come to you with a question or problem, I know what's wrong. What I don't know is what to try. Right. right? Okay. And so what they were really good at was saying, hey, how about if you tried this or how about if you tried that? Mm-hmm. And what that does for us is when we kind of have a direction, oh, I could try that, but that reminds me of another thing I might try or another thing mm-hmm. I might try. Uh-huh. It's what we call generative. More and more ideas come up because usually if I'm stuck, right, if you're stuck on a sermon illustration, let's say, and someone says, well, how did you try this? Or what about that story you told me once about, you know, when you were in, in the rodeo? Or what about that one story you told me that once? And like, yeah, there was that, but there was also this other thing and this other thing. And the ideas start flowing again. Wow, what, I, what I tell writers is um, a good suggestion gives us traction to start moving forward when we're stuck. Right. Yeah. And, um, but if you just say, yeah, that was boring or yeah, you're right. That's not working. <laughs> like, right. thanks. You know, 
uh, I feel more stuck than before. And so uh, this happened all the time for the Inklings where they gave them specific uh, kind of uh, advice. One of my favorite examples is very early when Tolkien was writing The Lord of the Rings, and he read some of the early chapters out loud. And he knew it wasn't working, but he didn't know why. And uh, and Lewis said, here's the problem, is you've got way too much dialogue mm. and not enough action. So that's a really specific piece of advice. Right. So, so Tolkien goes and he's like, oh, too much dialogue and not enough action. Well, that's really a simple kind of fix. It's a really specific direction. And so he rewrites those sections, and he cuts down the dialogue by almost half. Mm. And he moves the pace along much more quickly. Mm. And you can, you can see this if you look at the early drafts. We have his early manuscripts, you know, in the days before computers, we have all these handwritten drafts that mm. Tolkien wrote. And you can study them. And it's really remarkable that not only does Tolkien revise what he had written up to that point, but from then on, he's keeping Lewis's advice in his mind and he is trying again and again to reduce the num- the amount of dialogue and conversation and talk and really pick up the pace and emphasize the action. And here's what I, one of the things I especially love about that. I get really excited about this. No, I love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. In, in his letters, Tolkien says, you know, I got this advice from Lewis. And he says, the problem is I like Hobbit talk. Yes. Mm much more than I like adventure, but I must bow to my greatest critic. Hmm. And so he's taking advice, even though he's not doing his druthers, right? right? He doesn't get to do what he would prefer, but he understands that if you can try it out with your audience in mind, maybe that'll help you get unstuck. And it certainly did. Can you imagine how long the Lord of the Rings would have been if Tolkien had continued to write primarily dialogue and not action? I would would be reading it, you know? Right, we'd we'd still be in the middle of it. (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, you're, you're talking about these things and, you know, I'm going back, like I have all these like flashbacks in, in the history of these different organizations I've been involved with. And, and I think you're bringing up a really good point, right? Like Lewis was dedicated to seeing the work completed in the way kind of that Tolkien wanted completed, but trying to help yep. give him principles to think through as he's working on the work. Exactly. And, and one of one of the things that not not to be critical of people, but but sometimes I feel like uh, the 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 lesser helpful encouragement is stuff like, well, this is the way I would do it. And then you hear mm-hmm. the criticism and almost in a writing and it's like, well, yeah, but I'm not writing your book. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, like, like that's a great idea. I love what you're saying, but that's not what this project is about. And, right. And yeah, go ahead. I would say that's where the term resonators is really helpful. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, I talk about resonators in Bandersnatch and I talk about it also in my uh, earlier book, the company they keep. Yes. Cause I think that the idea of being a resonator is so important so uh, I uh, had studied the word. It's a technical term. We talk about it in the arts. But it was a friend of mine, Gain Anaker, who helped me understand what a resonator is. He came up to me after I was giving a lecture, and he said, I love your, love your talk, love what you had to say, but do you know what a resonator is? And I gave him the technical definition, right? 
A resonator is someone who fundamentally understands what you're doing and commits to companion with you until the work is accomplished. And he said, no, that's not what a resonator is. He said, come here. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, because this is all public. (laughs) There's all these people around. He walks me over to a piano. And I'm like, okay. And he opens up a piano. He says, do you know what a piano is? I said, "Um, that is a piano, I I guess. And And he laughs at me and he says, look, in a piano you've got all these little strings. And if you made a sound in the little string all by itself, that little sound would never be heard. Hmm. What the body of the piano does is it resonates. Hmm. It catches the sound and amplifies it. Hmm. And if we're going to be resonators for each other, we have to first learn to listen and then not add our own melody, but amplify the sound of that little string. Hmm to be authentic in helping each other to really realize their own authentic vision. Right. And that's what a resonator does, right? The body of a violin, the body of a piano, it doesn't try to add some new flourishes. It doesn't try to change its essence. It just brings out the best in that original tone. Mm-hmm. And especially when someone's working on something and they're feeling a little, a little lost or a little discouraged, um, it helps so much to have someone who can kind of listen and then feed back. And so one of the things I talk about a lot is the need to learn to ask better questions. Oh, that's a good question. Right? So that good. when someone is telling us about a project, you know, we can say, well, can you tell me more about that? And can you give me an example of that? Right. Can You know, just learning to ask good questions, learning to listen, and then learning to give one another feedback. What I hear you saying is, Yes. Are you trying to get at this, mm. right? And and that kind of active listening is something that we don't do enough of in the groups that we're part of. No, you're right. It's it's interesting because, you know, one of the things that we noted before we started the podcast, and, and it's definitely alive in your book, and, and it comes out, and you've talked about this a little bit, and but, but maybe just to kind of blow up um, the role of friendship in this, right? Because they mm-hmm. were friends with each other. And, yeah. you know, as I was, as I was reading through uh Bandersnatch, you, you know, you would kind of see, you would, you would give a, kind of an agenda of what they would do. And the question I always kind of wanted to ask was, wow, it seemed like that fellowship time, even though there wasn't, even though maybe the agenda items aren't being done, right? Because like during the fellowship, they're not necessarily listening to one of their works, but I kept thinking right. like, how fruitful, like what did that friendship, what fruit did that friendship time end up producing to making everything more successful? It's like freeing and unstructured. Yeah. And it seems like it coordinates here with even what you're saying with the resonating, right? Because when somebody doesn't know you and they kind of yeah. hear your project, they, their, their, their encouragement tends to be though good hearted and, and good natured. Sometimes you find it going, wow, I don't know if that's really like, you know, you're missing, the you're goal. missing some things that you, in me and in this goal, or even in, right, even, even in pursuing the Lord or helping people know the Lord, right? You, there's some things you're missing in this, but then when it's a friend, because they, they know you better, right? That, that, you know, it's almost like the resonating helps, helps better. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think yeah, you've, said I, it, I, you, you've said something <laughs> like, encourage you to be like yourself more. More of yourself. Right. It's like making More yourself. like yourself. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've really hit upon one of the real keys, right? And that is that the 
critique group, the Thursday night critique group, where they would read their manuscripts and talk about them. That was embedded in a whole web of other kinds of relationship, of hanging out, of, you know, meeting for lunch and doing other kinds of uh, community building things that we sometimes think of as a waste of time. But Mm. maybe one of the fruits of this time during COVID is we've learned to appreciate more than we ever have before how important it is to just be in the same place at the same time and do life together. Right. And this this means so much. One of, one of the questions I get asked a lot or one of the things that people bring up is, what is the proper balance of positive feedback and critical feedback in a group? And what a lot of people will assume uh, when they ask me about that kind of dynamic is they'll say, well, you start with something positive and you sandwich something negative and then you end with something positive. <laughs> right. And I say, well, the problem is everybody knows that trick, Right. right? So if you're going to use that trick, the problem is they see it coming from a mile away and they're braced Mm -hmm. for the sandwich filling, right? Mm -hmm. For the negative. And what I find in the, in the inklings is something very, very different. They didn't try to balance or proportion negative and positive, but the negative comments were taken to heart because everybody in the group believed down in their bones, they believed that everything that was said was intended for the best for these individuals, right? That um, it was, if, if you know that someone has your best interest in mind, then you're really willing to listen to even some pretty harsh correction, right? Right. Um, and it doesn't have to be sandwiched, right? We don't need any tricks or techniques. If you know in your bones that when that person is saying, hey, I need to talk to you, this is not okay. You mm. know, we, we, you need to deal with this thing. Mm. Um, if I know that you, you're saying that to me, but I know you, we're friends, we hang out, we've journeyed together through life. Right. I want to know what you have to say because I know that it will be for my good. Yes. And if I believe that, I can take any percentage of criticism or critical comments um, because I, just, I know that it comes from a place of love. Right. Mm. Uh, you, you are preaching to my heart. I, yes. I, I say this all the time, um, and you, maybe you could let me, maybe this resonates too, um, but I, I always say that friendship is the platform for ministry. Um, mm-hmm. And I think yep. that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, love believes the best. The whole yeah. time you're talking, I'm thinking First Corinthians 13, right? Love believes the best. And so... Yeah. You know, it's interesting because like our fellowship nights, our Bible study nights, it's an hour of fellowship and then about 45 minutes in the word with with some discussion and prayer at the end. But um, sometimes we talk, is that too long of fellowship? But then I think what we've seen in the church is that because of the time of fellowship, right, the small talk, you know, though you may walk away and go, well, we talked about the Yankees game. What I think people <laughs> don't realize is in that small talk about something very innocuous is you've learned the language of the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You yeah. start to learn their sense of humor. You learn the way they think. So mm-hmm. now when they, when they talk about something more risky, right, or something that's potentially more um, controversial, controversial <laughs> or, right, or strikes at my heart or, you know, maybe makes me uneasy, we have built a bridge through that communication to where it's like, you know what? I hear them. And because I've heard them in, in safer conversations, I actually know this person loves me. 
And so, right, right even if right. they don't say it right, because sometimes people say things with really good intention, but because they've never said it before, they don't mm-hmm. package it in the best way. Yeah. You know, and so that love like actually bridges these gaps and goes, oh, you know what? I know that they, they love and they mean well and that this is all mm-hmm. really good. And so it seems kind of like, right, that's the inklings, right? These guys, they loved each other. Right, and so they can almost say anything to each other. Well, it's, it's weird because they, I mean, I'm assuming they're walking into this meeting, right, knowing they're going to be punished for their work. <laughs> so, right. like, are you, how did they, I mean, they, they must have, you know, um, I mean, it's not that they were going for punishment, but they, they, they were ready to maybe grow and expand their thinking, expand their hearts on whatever they're working on. Um, yes. So I, I, that's so important. So that's probably a big part of the group dynamic too, right? In, in collaboration, when you come to the group, is it is it safe to say maybe to be uh, to help the collaboration be better, be open to new ways, or be open to changing your thinking on different things? Mm-hmm. You have to be open to suggestions, right, and mm-hmm. recommendations, and that doesn't mean you have to take them, that's or true. that you have to take them exactly as they are shared. But again, we're, we're um, trying to deal with the concept that when we get stuck, we need suggestions to help us get unstuck. Yeah. We need someone to open up possibilities. What if you try this? What if you try that? You know, in talking about the balance of positive and negative, another thing that's really, I think, instructive about the Inklings is trying to understand why the group came to an end. So if these guys are meeting twice a week for 17 years or more, why did the group meetings stop? Right. And so part of it is it's the it's the life cycle of a group. You know, things can't go on forever. But there's another part, um, actually kind of a heartbreaking aspect of what happened with the Inklings. And that's that one of the members of the group, a guy named Hugo Dyson, um, didn't like Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Now, to not like something is very different than to be critical of. Right. Right. Mm. Um, And what he did was basically when after a while when Tolkien was reading from the Lord of the Rings, if Hugo Dyson was present, he would roll his eyes and he'd say, Oh no, not another elf story, you know? And Tolkien would, would close his manuscript and put it back, you know, uh, put it away. And what Dyson was doing was not criticism. Yeah. It was dismissal. Hmm. Right. When we dismiss one another, we shut the door to any further growth, right? right? So if, um, if we, I don't want to hear about it, I don't think that's important, I don't see why you're upset about it, that's not a big idea, that's not a good, that's not even a thing. What are you, what's, the, what's the deal? Why are you so upset about it? Those are dismissive com- com- um, kinds of comments. And when we make dismissive comments, we shut the door to being able to be allies. Mm-hmm. and resonators and being able to come alongside and help. So huge difference right. between a, a Lewis who says, I think you have too much dialogue. I think you should try to pick up the pace a little bit, which is very critical and which takes Tolkien back to the drawing board and to revision. And somebody who says, oh, I don't want to hear it. Not that again. Are you still on that? Why are you still talking about that? Or right. I don't see why you're making such a big deal about it. I think that that's death dealing when we say that to one another right. because if the person is sharing it they're probably taking a risk and it probably is in fact a big deal to them and then we go back to our posture is our posture uh, one of being a listener really mm-hmm. hearing the heart of that person 
and then committing to kind of coming alongside and seeing if there's anything that we can do to help and support. Maybe it's practical help, you know, maybe, right. maybe it's something really simple. Maybe, maybe it's more elaborate. Maybe it's a, uh, it's that encouragement, that putting courage in that positive word. Maybe it's accountability. Um, trying to figure out, well, how about if we connect in a week and we check back and see how, how you've made progress on that. Right. So there's lots of different forms and I consider all of these to be models of collaboration that really do a lot of good for the church. And there are just so many examples of this happening within the circle of the England. Right. You really see, as you talk, it's like, you know, I feel like I've, I'm seeing the humility of Lewis and Tolkien and these different, these different collaborators, right. And, and the humility in that not, not only were they teachable and open to, uh, to help, in the, in their projects, but also they were willing to serve other people. And mm-hmm. that, that, that take, that's a lot of mental work to say, I'm going to invest in your project as well in the things going on in your life as well. Right. That that's hard work actually, because it's uh, it's, you know, I'm prone to just want to take care of the things in my family with my wife and my kids and my specific job responsibilities, but um, to actually invest in other people takes a commitment to them and to serving them. Uh, and that that's, to me, that's, as you talk, I just keep seeing those attributes in Lewis and Tolkien coming out in their, in their character. There's a lot of wisdom there. Yes. Um, I, I think like the, it's the how to of the one another's um, cause yeah. that's the struggle. It's like when you say to the church, do the one another's, they don't really know how to. And right. as I hear Diana speak here, it's like, oh, that's how you do it. Okay. Yeah. That you, you're a resonator. You are a, uh, you know, you, you're trying to help them become uh, who they are as a gifted individual. Yes. Uh, but walk in the Lord specifically. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in the collaboration aspect or the creativity aspect, it's, you know, trying to help them, you know, express, express who they really are in that project. Right. Well, and even even to take what what you're saying in and realize, right, in a church, there there are unfortunately sometimes issues that, that people feel like they can't talk about because they may be taboo or well a good Christian just doesn't think like that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and unfortunately that um not not everybody has the same background. And so some people have to think through things mm-hmm. uh, because they've never been taught or something comes up, right. That, that is a little more risque to talk about, but the, the opportunity to invest in somebody who's thinking through these things, you know, uh, it's almost like that. It's better to have that friendship where we can think through these things together. E- even if our thinking does have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, what what a, what a joy to have somebody in the church or, or some people in the church that you can go through that together and help, can help walk you through the thinking, you know, even if your thinking's potentially biblically unbalanced, you know. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't... That, go ahead, Diane, sorry. I was going to say that everybody's on a different timetable, and I think yes. that we can respect that God, uh, the Holy Spirit, is at work, but according to a different timetable in different people's lives, and that can make us a little bit more patient with one another, but that doesn't violate the principle of bearing one another's burdens. Yes. So we bear one another's burdens in the process. And I like to think about the way that Tolkien incorporated this into the Lord of the Rings. So Tolkien was Catholic. He was uh, faithful to God all his life. In fact, I believe that some of the reason that we still read C.S. Lewis is because Tolkien was faithful to pray for C.S. Lewis right. every day right. throughout his life. 
Um, but in The Lord of the Rings, you have a wonderful example of what it means to bear one another's burdens. And you remember that as Sam and Frodo are going toward Mordor, yep. there's a point where Frodo just can't go anymore. And, um, and Sam asks if he can carry the ring. And Frodo says, no, you can't, right? Mm. And Sam says, I can't carry it, but I can carry you. Remember? Yes. And he awesome. picks him up. And there's a wonderful detail that's in the book that's not in the movie. And it's that Sam, to his amazement, found the burden light. Mm. Wow. When we yeah. bear one another's burdens, when yep. we carry each other, right, in this way, we carry each other in hope, we carry each other in love and faith, yep. we carry one another faithfully to pray and care for one another, check in on one another, make time for one another. That doesn't feel heavy. It feels light. Mm-hmm. But when we're carrying our own burdens, they feel so overwhelming, just like Frodo experienced with the ring, right? Yep. Wow. Yeah. No, I love it. You, you, I knew there was something to that scene. You, well, actually, the movie doesn't do it justice. No, but you started talking about even just being patient with it. And Gino and I are in, in here celebrating because <laughs> that, that is such an important part. We, we, you know, I feel like we have that conversation monthly with somebody where... It's, you know, you have to be patient because, uh, I write God's actually wise to not use my timetable to grow other people. Amen. Mm -hmm. Like, unfortunately I'm not, I think I'm wise, but God's, (laughs) you know, God's like, no, (laughs) that's not the way that it works, you know? And and I'm reminded, you know, that Philippians one, six, he who begins a good work in you, he will complete it. And so it's like, yeah, yeah, not on my timetable on his. And yeah, yeah, no, I, a patient resonating. Maybe it's like, you're always working at resonating, helping that person, um, knowing that God is working and and the results will come in God's time. So, so in kind of talking about this, right, you've, we have talked about the collaboration and just, you know, for listeners to kind of little snapshot of where we've been talking about collaboration, the role of encouraging, resonating with people. And we've talked a little bit about like criticism is, can be good and needing to be teachable in the way that we receive criticism. Uh, because especially from, from people that understand what we're trying to do, their criticism is not there to personally attack us. It's to help what we're doing be better. Um, and so Ramil asked this question and, and I want to ask it because it, I think it was a really good question. And a dissenting voice is always helpful in any group endeavor because it provides different ways of looking at things that a group in unison might not see. But at what point does a dissenting voice become too unhelpful to continue to be included in a discussion? Mm, I love that question. Thank you for, for asking it. Um, I think this idea of needing a needing different kinds of people that we collaborate with and that we interact with is really important. And I'm so glad that the question kind of focuses on that. So that the best possible combination is to have people who are passionate about the same thing, but who come at it from very, very different points of view. Right. Right. So let's take a really simple example. Let's say you wanted to do a better job with recycling at your church. You would want to gather a team, not where everybody's on the same page, because then there would be no fresh perspectives, and then there would be no sparks that would give light to the problem. You would need to gather different ages, different kinds of people, different you know experience levels, different skills and training. You would want to, care, to bring together as diverse a group as possible, because without that diversity of background and skill and talents and calling... You can't make substantial progress, but you need people who are equally passionate about the goal, 
right, who are on the same page. This is what needs to happen. This matters. This is important to me. And so that's the combination that you're looking for. And in that process, as people are brainstorming ideas and critiquing ideas and coming up with plans and stuff, the difference, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is the difference between critiquing an idea and dismissing an idea, right? right? To dismiss it means there's no merit there. I don't want to hear it. What are you talking about? That's stupid. To critique it says, I like that aspect, but I'm concerned about the practicality. Right. Or, ooh, if only we had enough money to do that, that would be really, really powerful. Right. You know, um, so, so you're thinking about the, the specifics of it, and you're critiquing and suggesting uh, to help with that. It, it can also go completely off the deep end and degenerate into an attack on the person. And that's never called for, never right. called for in the body of Christ, right? right? Um, and uh, that's, that can um, happen at its worst. But what I think we don't understand enough is how destructive dismissal is. Mm-hmm. That right. posture where we even don't want to listen or right. don't even want to consider, especially when people are in pain or are struggling, and we look at it and we say, well, that doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Right. But then there's that, as you say, uh, there's that humility that says, that doesn't matter. It's a big deal to the person I'm talking to, so I'm going to sit with it as long as it takes for them to feel like I am present for them right in the midst of their experience, right? right? We, we, we uh, laugh with those who laugh. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to get much better at weeping with those who weep. Uh, we're, not, we're not so good at that. We, we uh, sometimes move too quickly to fixing, right? Yeah. We want to fix it so that we don't have the heavy or uncomfortable uh, feelings. But that's not the scriptural way. Uh, We need to learn how to do a better job of weeping with those who weep and being quiet, sitting quietly with those who just need a friend, just need someone to be there. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's, you know, even, um, you know, in in kind of the group dynamic too, and, and maybe there's an example or something here, right, that, that sometimes what you see is somebody is very adamant about the, his or her idea, and and the group says, hey, it's, it's not a bad idea, but we just think this other idea is slightly better for what we're trying to do and the way we're trying to go. So we're going to take this idea instead. Um, I, think, I think we can also stair-step off of someone's idea. That's yes. good, and that reminded me of this. And we can, if, when we trace back the brainstorming process, so often that off-the-wall idea actually becomes the catalyst right. for an insight we wouldn't have gotten any other way. Right. And so we can we can just really um, affirm one another, hey, I'm so glad you said that because that reminded me of this and that helped us get where we were going. All of those different perspectives become part of the raw materials that get us to the goal. Right. And I think that's, I think sometimes, right, people leave the group dejected because my idea wasn't the idea. And I think that's what you're saying, right? Like, yeah, at the end of the day, the X's and O's that, that you put on paper might not have been the precise X's and O's that the group did, but don't discount the role that you played in helping the group make the decision. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely true. And especially, uh, if I can circle back around and, and say this one more time, especially as we get better at asking questions. Yeah, I do. Because a lot that. of times mm-hmm. someone will throw out an idea and will say, no, I don't think that'll work. Instead of saying, how do you see that working? No, or that, how would yes. that play out? Or what would that look like exactly? Help me to see it more clearly. And because uh, a lot of times the first way that someone says something 
That's not the most helpful way, but right. there's still some gold in there. No, we right. just have to sit still and listen and clarify right. and uh, kind of understand and then use that as part of the raw materials and build upon it to get to where we want to go. Yeah, mm. it's interesting because I've even had um, some some people kind of come to me a little upset because I'm not doing something that they would like for me to do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've learned to ask that question, well, how would how do you see me doing that? Yes. And sometimes they'll say, well, I see this. And then I'll ask the question, how do I integrate that into my already weekly responsibilities? And sometimes I'll even spell out like, well, here's, you know, here's six things that take up a lot of my time. And, you yeah. know, I still need to hang out with my family and, and, and my wife. And, and sometimes yeah. it's interesting because that person will be like, you know, I didn't realize that you have all that on your plate. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting how, like you said, just asking some very good questions and pointed questions, right? Because sometimes people write their hearts in the right place, but they yeah. don't have the information to actually provide uh, the most helpful diagnosis or, or uh, encouragement or, you know, and so that lacking information, right? Hearts in the right place, just unfortunately mm-hmm. not enough information to provide a better encouragement. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. very, very good point. I wonder what happened to Dyson. I mean, did he, was he ever like scolded or was he ever like, you know, hey, that's not how we do things in this group or, you know what I mean? Like, was he, um, did the group end specifically because of him or was it him plus other things? Well, people have different um, explanations of kind of why the group and what the components were. I believe that that was the critical um, step that brought the inklings to an end with somebody saying, I don't want to hear what you have to offer. Yeah. Uh, other, other scholars would give you a different answer. Um, he, what, what happened in the meetings is after a while, C.S. Lewis got kind of set up with him and told him to shut up. That's a direct C.S. Lewis quote that you don't see <laughs> right, in the wow. memes or in the cross yeah. stitch, right? Shut up. Um, but Lewis said it and he said it repeatedly and he actually, he sort of clap his hands, say, shut up, Hugo, come on, tallers. And wow. Tolkien was a more sensitive person, and he would just shake his head and put the manuscript away. He wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And if uh, over time, if Dyson was present, Tolkien wouldn't even bring out the manuscript at all. He would just uh-huh. be silent through the meeting. So it was it was really a, a horrible thing for him to be shut down in that way. So Hugo Dyson is remembered um, by many people as the guy who didn't like the Lord of the Rings. The question that I have when I think about that, speaking of asking good questions, is is why? Mm, What was it about the Lord of the Rings? And one of the things that we know about Dyson is that Dyson had served in the war, Mm. and he was deeply um, hurt by a lot of his experiences Mm. in wartime. And so one one of my friends has a theory that I think is, it might, it might, we think of him as a bully or we think of him as somebody who has no social skills or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if the scenes of war, of preparation for war, of recovery from war, the, right. the sense of battle and, and of doom, I wonder if it was something that was just too hard for him to hear right. because of his own pain. And that's why he was dismissive. No, that's you a pretty know, good theory. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> wow. honestly, at that okay. point, they weren't dealing with. PTSD. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I love about that too is, is one of the things we try to say is, yeah, you, you're going to run across people that, you know, and, and, and interactions that, that are good for telling funny stories around a dinner table, you know, unfortunately at somebody's expense. 
But but if you can start to kind of look and, and sympathize or empathize with why a person might be that way, it really is helpful. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. I mean, Dyson is probably, you know, uh, I always try to remember, right, his mom loved him. And, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> right, I mean, and he, yeah, you know, so he's probably a good guy. It's unfortunate, right, that, that maybe the narrative on him could be potentially souring. But, you mm-hmm. know, he's not a perfect guy either. He's going to have strengths, weaknesses, struggles. And, I, you know, I don't know. You, I, I defer to you, but that to me sounds like a an excellent explanation. Yeah, it just it just yeah. shows that people are uh, more than um, more than what we see, and yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's a big group. I, I can't imagine like you know someone or everyone trying to figure out what was trying to you know what was going on with them or maybe trying to help them. But um, yeah, it's such a it's it's sad though. It's sad that 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 was the approach he took and. Right. Um, and from what I understand, uh, Tolkien, you had mentioned, is different than Lewis in, 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 in regard to their personalities. He was more the quiet one, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So this is, um, yeah, this is really helpful. Uh, hopefully, I mean, honestly, we just talked about humility, love, teachability. Um, listening. Friendship. Listening, friendship, uh, learning to really, I think we, I mean, it's funny, yesterday at the men's, we were talking about Philippians 2, 4, right? Do not look out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. And to me, that's yeah. what this whole podcast just unfolded, right? That as a craftsman in the church who wants to honor God in the relationship with the church, what we just unfolded was this, you know, when we look at the inklings, we see that done by these men and we can see their humility and their love and how it drove them to, to be invested in each other, which then of course, because of also the friendship opens up and makes communication more effective and that, that friendship. Right. And so it's interesting because, you know, with different personalities, some people don't see the role of how fellowship can be, um, right. Well, we need to, when are we going to do work? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, actually the fellowship <laughs> is, is actually making you work better. And mm-hmm. it's yeah. one of, you know, for, for the type a people that can be really hard. Whereas the type B, B people are like, do we have to start the work? You know? And so, but that balance <laughs> seems to be such an important part there. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, one of the reasons I never get tired of talking about Lewis and Tolkien and the Inklings is I, I recognize that there are a lot of practical principles that we can, we can pull from their example. Yeah. But I think that we need more than just principles, right? At mm-hmm. the end of each of the chapters in Bandersnatch, I have a little principle, like doing what the Inklings did, little kind of distillations of some of the key lessons. And I think that those lessons are really important, but we need the stories because we need someone to show us, not just tell us, but show us what it looks like. And that goes back to what you said right at the very beginning of this podcast, that um, we need an illustration of what does healthy collaboration look like. If Lewis's essay called The Inner Ring talks about how collaboration goes bad, we need examples of what it looks like when it's done well. And you look at the inklings and you think about the fact that between Lewis and Tolkien and the rest of them, they wrote over a hundred books. And right. some of those books continue to be bestsellers to this day. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful fruit for the kingdom of God that came out of the process of a couple of guys deciding, hey, let's spend more time investing in each other and right. see what God can do. And they started small. 
They started small. I love that. They started small. And that's mm-hmm. your that's that's one of your encouragement to this is even for somebody who's listening who's not a part of Cornerstone and doesn't know and and they're saying, hey, you know, I want to be a part of this group. I think I love your encouragement on that, right? Because mm-hmm. you you say, listen, listen, start small. It's okay to have a grand vision, but but start small and maybe even don't try to ta- you know if you're thinking, hey, this group we want to accomplish forty five things. When you start small, <laughs> right, narrow it down to the essentials. Maybe start with one or two tasks. Yeah. 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 So start small because, you know, it's okay if it's just you and another friend. And I, I keep thinking about even Lewis's, um, that commencement speech, the inner ring where he says, listen, you be about the craft. And as you meet other people who are about the craft, rather than having an inner ring, well, you're going to look up and go, wow, I have a friendship with these people. Mm-hmm. And that, that starting yeah. small is so important. Um, Right. It's not, it's, it's okay if there's not 45 people at your first group meeting, it's okay if there's two of you, right? Like start small and, you know, be about the, be about what you want to be about. I think that's a big part Mm -hmm. of that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Having a focus is really helpful, but you know, we think about the inklings and people are like, I want to have an inklings group. So I'm going to invite all my friends and everybody at my church and everyone I've ever met in my life. And (laughs) we have, you know, we're going to, we're going to start a movement. It's going to be amazing. That's not how the Inklings did it. Right. And I think that if we're going to look at their example, we look at what they did because what they did worked. Right. And what it was is the simplest thing in the whole wide world. Lewis and Tolkien worked at the same place. Yeah. Mm. And they said, hey, how about we get together for lunch once a week? Monday mornings, let's get together late morning and then we'll go have lunch. That's, that's the heartbeat of what started the Inklings. Two guys said, hey, Let's just get together. Let's talk about the books we're reading. Eventually, they start talking about the books they were writing. And little by little, in an organic way, as the Holy Spirit gave increase, they added one and then another and then another and sharpened their focus. And wonderful things resulted from that. But it starts with two guys deciding, I'm going to make time in my schedule. And they're, they're busy, too. They're both they have full-time jobs, plus they're full-time writers. Plus, they have families, right? I mean, these guys are as busy as we are. Mm, and yeah. they said, you know what? Lunch is important. Lunch, <laughs> lunch matters. <laughs> right. That's so good. So you've, you've got the company they keep, uh, which you said was the more detailed version, uh, and then Bandersnatch, which um, is, is kind of like you said, the more practical, you know, nuts and bolts. But you have, a thir- you have another book coming out August 3rd. Do you want to tell us about that book? Oh, I would love to. So for those people who are interested in the Inklings, both the company they keep and Bandersnatch, uh, try to give an inside look at these authors and their interaction. Um, but the new book that's coming out is a collection of essays, and it is a much more specific, a quite a different purpose than these others. And so the book is called A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating uh, C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. Mm. So C.S. Lewis wrote science fiction. He wrote these three wonderful science fiction books. He wrote Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. And these books are not appreciated enough, and there's a reason for that, I think. So I think a lot of people read the science fiction <laughs> books that Lewis wrote, and they say, well, here's what they say to me. Here's what I hear a lot. I hear them say, yeah, I read them, and they were fine, but I felt like there was a lot going on in there that I didn't quite really get. Like, I didn't really get what he was going for. Right. And so I've gotten together with a team of uh, scholars, and we've written a handbook 
that helps to spell out what are the things that Lewis assumes you already know before you read those science fiction books. Because the book is full of allusions. It's full of references to things like H.G. Wells or um, King Arthur or Merlin or, you know, scientism and all these kind of things. And you're like, I'm not really sure I know quite what he's getting at there. Right. So we wrote a little handbook to help people to really read and appreciate the science fiction books by giving what we call the backdrops and building blocks of those stories, the things that Lewis is using as he is crafting these exciting science fiction mm. stories. You know, I think I'm, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help people a lot, and I'm really excited about it. Thanks for writing that. He's probably too bu- brilliant for us to understand <laughs> offhand, you know? <laughs> oh, it's, it's interesting because you just explained this book, and I remember at one point in my English studies, uh, we were reading, I think we were reading Fairy Queen, and, you know, there's allusions to other works, you know, that very, you know, that 16th century British writing liked to write, even Milton always made references to these other works. And I loved Paradise Lost and Regained, but you're reading that and there's times where you're like, man, I really need to know more about like, you know, uh, the mythical stories because he's bringing in people that I don't know about. And so I always have found myself like having to like go look up these different people that he's referencing, which is like, Oh, now this. (laughs) And so I actually love the space trilogy and it's interesting because the third one is the most interesting of the lot in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, it absolutely is, you know, and, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I've been behind the scenes at, at a university in Oklahoma and, and kind of got a glimpse at another behind the scenes, another university. And, And so you read that, that third one and you're like, this guy, is it science fiction or, you know, so, (laughs) you know, you kind of have this like, uh, this isn't, this is closer to reality, you know, and yet there's a very, you know, Wells, you know, Orwellian kind of like, um, tune to it as well. And so, uh, I'm excited about that book. I think it will help a lot of people. If, if we've done our work, um, then people will appreciate and enjoy the science fiction books even more. Uh, I think that they are phenomenal. I just think we all need a little bit of a handbook to kind of help us to navigate through. So the book is called A Compass for Deep Heaven, mm. and I hope that people will uh, go pick it up. It's available now for pre-order on Amazon, but it'll be released on the 3rd of August, so a little oh. less than two weeks. I'm actually awesome. going to pick it up because uh, that that space trilogy yeah. it is really good. And when I took my C.S. Lewis class, I had to read them too fast. But um, <laughs> but the the you know because it's it's interesting. Out of the Silent Planet is I'll let you correct me on this. So going back quite a while since I read it, but it, it's the first um, Adam and Eve. It's the first sin on the world, and then Paralandra. Oh, Paralandra is the first sin. Out of the Silent. Uh, Okay, I got it. Planet is, is when they go to Mars, when uh, the main character, Elwyn Ransom, gets kidnapped and taken to Mars, and he lives among the different peoples of yes. Mars. Yes. Right? See, this is yeah. why I need this book, because for a normal person like me, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to need the extra help here. Yeah, okay, and Paralandra is the, yeah. Paralandra's the murder. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, that's and right. I, yeah, I don't, hopefully I didn't spoil the book for anybody. Oh, I and then, <laughs> okay, but out of the Silent Planet was that? Uh, no, Paralander also had the. Was, which one had the marriage in it? See, it's been like a long time, but I remember enjoying them. The seminary happens, and you have to read what they tell you to read. And now I'm at that point where I'm starting to go back through literature, and so. 
Hmm. Well, I think you should start small and start a little book club at your church, and you can read the science fiction books, and you can use our book to help us guide the way. I would do it. I, honestly, I'm, I'm going to pick that up because that uh, that Lewis and Tolkien are, are amazing, and so um, I'm so appreciative of your time. Uh, this was helpful to me. It's hmm. you know, uh, it's also helpful because Gina and I say you know we 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 try to we talk a lot about things that you have mentioned today. And it's good to have an outside voice yeah. who sees the same things. And you've noted they're in scripture as well. And so it's really beneficial. Great. I'm glad. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you so much, Diana. Yeah. You've been super helpful for us. And um, I, I, I'm excited for our people to hear the conversation. Yes. Fantastic. Sweet. Well, uh, here's some closing music. And then, um, all right. Thank you.